Hey, folks, if you've been listening to our show, you've probably heard Victor talk about Hillsdale College. It's one of the few colleges in the U.S. still interested in teaching truth. What you probably didn't know is that they have over 40 free online courses. And Victor is one of the professors in three of those courses, American Citizenship and its Decline, based on Victor's book, The Dying Citizen, How Progressive Elites, Tribalism, and Globalization Are Destroying the Idea of America, The Second World Wars, based on his book by the same name, and Athens and Sparta, partly based on his book, A War Like No Other, How the Athenians and Spartans Fought the Peloponnesian War. Don't you wish Victor would have been one of your professors in college? Well, now you can join him as he covers some of the main ideas of his books with Hillsdale College's online courses, all available for free. That's right, for free. The courses are seven to nine episodes long, and they are self-spaced, so you can take them whenever and wherever. I think I'm going to start with American Citizenship and Its Decline, where Victor explores the history of citizenship in the West and the threats it faces today. Threats like the erosion of the middle class, the disappearance of our borders, the growth of an unaccountable deep state, and the rise of globalist organizations. Hey, start your free course with Victor Davis Hansen today. Go right now to hillsdale.edu slash vdh to start. It's free and it's easy to get started. That's hillsdale.edu slash vdh to start. hillsdale.edu slash vdh. Hello, you've joined the Victor Davis Hampton Show. Victor is a commentator and analyst of current political and military affairs. He's also a classicist and a historian and has written 27 books. He is then no surprise that he works at the Hoover Institution. He is the Martin and Neely Anderson Senior Fellow in Military History and Classics at the Hoover Institution and the Wayne and Marsha Busky Distinguished Fellow in History at Hillsdale College. This is our Friday News Roundup, so we'll look at the news of the week, and we've got lots of things out there to look at. Tucker was fired, as was Don Lemon, so we're going to start off with those two. So stay with us, and we'll be right back. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factors No Prep No Mess Meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factors Fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just 2 minutes, so no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious Great tasting meals. Make today the day you kickstart a new healthy routine. What are you waiting for? For our listeners, Factor is giving you 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month when you use the promo code VICTOR50 at factormeals.com slash VICTOR50. Choose from six menu preferences to help you manage calories, maximize protein intake, avoid meat, or simply eat well-balanced. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Remember, to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month, 
Head to factormeals.com slash Victor50, that's V-I-C-T-O-R-5-0, and use the code Victor50, that's code Victor50, at factormeals.com slash Victor50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Can't pay the IRS? Haven't filed in a while? Receiving threatening letters? Yeah. It's about to get worse. The IRS is hiring an army of agents targeting hardworking Americans like you. You need warriors on your side. You need Tax Network USA. Tax Network USA has brilliant strategies to solve your IRS problems quickly and in your favor. For instance, they've discovered a limited time special offer that the IRS is willing to waive $1 billion in penalties. Find out if you qualify before it's too late. Never call the IRS alone. Let Tax Network USA attorneys handle it. They have preferred direct lines to the IRS. They know which agents to work with and which to avoid. They've resolved over $1 billion in tax debts and offer a best-in-class guarantee. Schedule your free consultation now. Call 1-800-245-6000. That's 1-800-245-6000 or... Visit TNUSA.com slash Victor. TNUSA.com slash Victor. Welcome back to the Victor Davis Hansen Show. I know that, Victor, we often start off our show these days with something positive. So I was wondering if you had a something positive for us. Something today. positive as I scan the horizon. Yes. Well, here in California, this is a very strange onset of hot weather because there's water everywhere and there's lush wildflowers in the Sierra. The snow is still 60%, 70% more so in the high country, not melted. What that means in the scorching dog days of August, we're going to have full reservoirs. And there's going to be the rivers are going to be running to the sea, unfortunately, but there's no storage. And we're going to have something we've never seen in 40 years is the recreation, unfortunately, of Tulare Lake, the largest freshwater lake this side of the Great Lakes. It's already 100 square miles. And yeah. at one time it was huge. And of course, it's the lake bed of some of the biggest corporate and most rich farmland in the world. And then a lot of it's going to be flooded and more is going to be flooded. But all in all, it's a positive development. Otherwise, when you look at the national scene, Sammy, uh, how about the economy? No. How about <laughs> fiscal responsibility? No. Wasn't Afghanistan like the Biden said a success? No. The border, isn't it? No. But energy, <laughs> no, I filled up today. Diesel was almost $6 a gallon and gasoline oh. was five fifty eight. So it's we back up, back up. And he's already taken 40% of the strategic petroleum reserve out for the midterm advantage. Yes. Uh, so I'm looking for it with this yes. clown, uh, Biden, but I can't see any positive things. I'm just worried that. <laughs> Uh, how we're going to exist the next two years. 
Yes, this um, is becoming a rabbit hole and a conundrum, this not so positive. I think that our first topic is might be in some ways positive. Tucker was fired from Fox News, and there's lots of speculation on the Internet as to why. And there's been sightings of him as on the golf course with his <laughs> wife having a good time. So I, I, I think there might be something good going on. We have, we have this, uh, but... known unknowns. We have unknown knowns. But apparently the text trove that was surfacing in the last lawsuit and might surface in the next two showed internal communications that suggested that Tucker was used, was not holding the Fox management in high regard. And that was sort of a perfect storm. And it's sort of, I think Howard Stern was mouthing off that you have to be a worker bee, but he, whom I don't agree with on anything, but he may be right that these corporate billionaires do whatever they want. And I think in their sense, they thought the bottom line is $770 million we paid. We might have to pay more. They're going to jump onto us. I think they should have fought that and tried to win it because that would have created deterrence. Now everybody's going to jump in. But I think they think these lawsuits are going to expose dirty laundry and they got angry at the things Tucker said. I would say to all of our audience members, those of you who use school emails, university emails, business emails, and when you have gossip that people write you or what, would you want that exposed? And so what Tucker says to a person that he knows and trusts and what he would say openly or what he feels is not necessarily the same thing. But the Murdoch family, apparently, Rupert Murdoch himself, was very angry. And it was a spur of the moment. And one of the ironies is that when somebody was losing money, like Chris Wallace, for example, they had a big send-off to him when he went over to CNN. And he was not any longer an integral part of the Fox lineup. But with Tucker, they they just fired him that morning. And mm. I think they said, quote, unquote, it's from higher up. But uh, there's also another narrative, Sammy, and it goes like this. And I've been reading it today and hearing it from friends. Well, Bill O'Reilly had even a bigger audience the day that he left than Tucker did. And they said that that would destroy Fox. And it didn't. Tucker came in and rebuilt the audience rather quickly. And Megyn Kelly was lured away for NBC. And she was, a you know, she was, she was right up there with O'Reilly, if not even getting close to a bigger audience. And they said, you can't replace Megyn Kelly. Well, Laura Ingram came in. And I'm not saying she replaced Megan or that um, Tucker replaced O'Reilly, um, but the narrative that's going, this is what I'm perceiving the narrative is, that Tucker will leave and then there'll be a Will Kane or Ryan Kilmady or something. It's, but I don't see that. I see Rush Limbaugh going off the air tragically, and I don't see anybody who's been able to recapture that audience. Yes. So, and there's another element to it. It's serial. The longer this disruption happens, so they got rid of Bongino. And if they're going to use the criteria who was more out there on the Dominion voting machines 
or election, quote unquote, denialism, then Judge Janine or Maria Bartella-Roma, all of those have more exposure than Tucker did. And so there may be more of these. And so I don't see that there's only so many talents there is. So you got the talented O'Reilly gone, and then you got the talented Tucker. You got the talented Megan. You got talented Laura came in. But when you get rid of the talent, that's not always going to happen. And we see that throughout uh, movies, anchor. Remember the 60s anchor man war? There was Cronkite and Huntley Brinkley and CBS and ABC and NBC's Fortune Roserfeld with their anchors for that period where you had Tom Brokaw and Walter well, Cronkite. Yeah, and, and you yeah, you have Peter Jennings, yes. Dan Rather, those three. They kind of were the people who kept the networks going. And when they left, it, it was kind of chaotic. So yes. I think they're going to have problems replacing him. A lot of people mm-hmm. say, well, they, they were boycotting him and the left hated him and he was reduced to my pillow at reduced rates advertising. So he didn't bring that much money. He did bring audience in. The Fox Nation was successful, and he anchored the entire um, subsequent two hours of news, three hours of news, that he was the link. So it was intangible all the ways that he enriched Fox. And There's one more narrative. What's that? And I saw this in the American Spectator today that the Fox News has bent the knee to the left, that they are trying to get rid of. Yes, AOC is promulgating that, that she helped take his scalp. Oh, really? I didn't know that. She's bragging about it, but she didn't believe in cancel culture, but she did believe in canceling canceling culture, canceling culture in this case of uh, Tucker Carlson. Uh, Yeah, I think that's true because think for a minute. Take a deep breath and say, okay, the Dominion, just take the Dominion. um, And I had been on a show, I think it was on Lou Dobbs when Sidney Powell was ranting. And and when she left, I said that I thought that the scandal was not the machines, but the changing of the voting laws legally, but dishonestly, I think, in March, April, and May under the COVID, um, under the pretext of COVID to change a 70-day, 70% election day electorate to a 70% absentee ballot or mail-in ballot or early voting electorate. And that was that was fundamental in the, in the election of 2020. But I, just take the dominion for a second. That happened after the election. So nobody is saying that these people who were going on and, and blaming Dominion or those crazy conspiracies that it was communicating with Venezuela or Russia or China. Nobody's saying that changed the election, right? They are saying that you owe us more than the net value of all of our market capitalization because we have been damaged. And I would like to see if that's true, see, because you in free speech, you can say things in the public sphere. And I would like to see why didn't the Fox lawyers have the data that showed that right now Dominion has suffered X amount of canceled contracts or its market capital. Maybe it has, but it would have been good for them to continue that fight. 
I think Dominion really put them in a bad spot by subpoenaing all of these internal emails that they didn't want to expose. But think of that versus the laptop. So you had the Federal Bureau of Investigation on a prompt of Joe Biden's deputy, Anthony Blinken, who called an old buddy, Michael Morrell, that was a what deputy director of the CIA, and said, essentially, can you round up a bunch of luminaries, John Brennan, James Clapper, and have them draft a letter swearing that the, not swearing, but they, they always have weasel words and escape clauses, but insinuating that this laptop is more Russian disinformation. Think of that for a second. They learned nothing. They forgot nothing. They had just been ridiculed and embarrassed for going with the 22 months, $40 million Robert Mueller Russian collusion. So they go right back to the same well, only this time it's not collusion, it's disinformation. They get the guys out there. They prep Joe Biden. He goes into the, this was all for the debate. He goes into the debate and he cites, he cites this letter proving that his son's laptop is Russian disinformation, which he knows is a lie because they had already leaked references from the laptop considering him. And he could tell his son's style and what his son does. He talks to his son. He knew it was authentic, but he had that cover. And he attacked Trump in for being a demagogue for even trying to mention it. So then the whole thing turns out to be a complete fraud. That did affect an election. There has been a poll that shows that people, had they known that that laptop information that had leaked out was accurate and Joe Biden and the Biden cartel consortium were crooked and were influence peddling, they wouldn't have voted for him. So that altered an election. And when you add into the, in, into the stew that the FBI had hired Twitter at three million bucks as a contractor to suppress information, which included the laptop story. And the same was with Facebook. So put it all together. And we are told that the Dominion was a really big story because a bunch of weirdos got on Fox News in their anger that the election didn't go their way. So they said, oh, I bet I bet the it was the the voting machines. And then they sued and everybody's, you know, oh, wow, this is terrible. But you had night after night after night, people at MSNBC, NBC, PBS, NPR, CBS, MS, uh, CNN, saying that there was Russian collusion and there was Russian disinformation. And that was false and it was demonstrably false. And to this day, no one, no one, no one says I'm sorry, there was never any Russian collusion. Adam Schiff still says there is. And Russia, there was no Russian disinformation. That laptop was authentic. And then you get into the Orwellian situation where Hunter Biden's lawyer essentially is saying this in his suit. You damaged my client, Mr. Computer Repairman, by disseminating the contents of this laptop, which is not to say that it was his laptop. It could have been somebody else's <laughs> laptop. We don't know. He may have just hated Hunter and took a laptop in the corner and said, that's Hunter's. Mm -hmm, and yeah. then you want to say, well, why don't we have forensic and see whether it's his or not? Well, they don't want to say that. So it's, it's silly.
But my point is the laptop did a lot more damage to the electoral process than did a bunch of crazy people on Fox claiming or alleging or insinuating that the Dominion voting machines were wired or rigged. That's what I'm trying to say. And I don't understand libel, culpability, uh, damaging a product when out of the Mueller investigation, you ruined the life of Michael Flynn. You ruined the life of Carter Page. You, you ruined the life of George Papadopoulos. You probably ruined the first two years of the Trump administration. And there's nobody that's culpable. Can't somebody mm -hmm. sue and say night after night after night after night? That anchor, this anchor said Russian collusion, Russian collusion, Russian collusion, Russian disinformation. Russian. They did. The, the clips are on Fox every night. I've seen them yes. on yes. Uh, the Internet. There's about 20 of them, and they have never apologized for those lies. And are you trying are you suggesting then that you think the case um, against Fox by Dominion should have maybe should have been thrown out of the court or something to that effect? I'm saying, well, it wasn't thrown out of the court because no. Fox capitulated. And I'm saying that I don't think that Fox should have capitulated. I think they would have won the case because mm -hmm. if you say that in an editorial free-for-all discussion on television, if somebody makes some crazy things, then you can ruin a whole network because that person said something. Tucker Carlson said on the air, we've had Sidney Powell on, but she's got to bring data and she won't do it. Yes. And so my point is that if that they backed out because the Dominion people had a strategy to subpoena these embarrassing which were considered secret interchanges and in text and emails. And that felt that that was building a case against Fox News itself. And it was embarrassing Fox. It was showing that Tucker was at the perception the Murdochs apparently had was Tucker was larger than they were. And he was insured. He was bulletproof and he, he could do anything. And they wanted to reassert control and say, look, we're going to cut him off at the legs and we don't like our employees talking about us that way to our other employees. And yes. so when you get down to all the sensationalism, prune it all away, you're basically saying that you can't make wild. You can't say wild things on TV. And if that's true, because Dominion won and you can't say wild things because they can hurt people. Well, that's that was the four years who was the person who promulgated the ping and the alpha bank? Who did that? What was Jake Sullivan doing with that dossier Sussman GPS connection? What was Blinken doing with the morale connection? What were Hillary Clinton doing? Destroying devices or using classified, uh, communicating in classified fashion over a homebrewed server. So what I'm saying is that there, it's again, it's an example of the asymmetry. But if we're going to get to the point where you're in a discussion on television and somebody says, well, what do you think about the election, Mr. Smith? And he says, well, you know, I think there's something wrong, but I I'll, I say Mark Zuckerberg put 419 million and that was wrong and illegal and maybe it wasn't illegal. And he sues you. You said I was illegal. It's not illegal. 
and we're going to sue your whole. I don't think I think the principle was worth fighting for. Yes, but what I'm getting is, is I think that the fact that they they settled so late in the game meant that they thought that the principle was worth fighting for until they got angry. And I, the way I view it from the sources I've talked to and the evidence that I've looked at is that they got angry. It was a, an emotional decision where the very top, Mr. Murdoch and his son said, you know what? I don't like the way this guy's talking about us. And we've lost a lot of money for all this loose talk. And we're going to lose a lot more in this loose talk. Let's just let's just get rid of everything. Yes. And we, rather than saying, take a deep breath, Tucker is the anchor to your whole empire. He is making you more money. I know his ads are not as lucrative as other people because of the boycotts and his controversy, but he brings traffic. And if you cut him off, like the first day they cut him off, they lost more, almost as much as they had settled in the lawsuit in stock value diminution. So I think that's where we are. And is there anything to be, Tucker is not, I mean, he's got a carpe diem. He's got to seize the day. We all have shelf lives. So look at Jon Stewart. When he left the comedy show or whatever it was, he was, even though he didn't have great ratings, he could have done anything. And now look at him, right? He didn't continue at that level. Either yes. did Jerry Seinfeld, right? And Bill O'Reilly kind of did. His podcast is very successful. And so are his books. And, and Megan Meg- Kelly as well. Yeah. Yeah. Megan, when she left NBC, she could have faded away. She didn't. She immediately created a whole new Megan Kelly brand. And I think it's even more lucrative to her and more successful than her Fox or NBC tenures. But I think she was very wise in seizing the day. And I think right now Tucker should start his own streaming show. You know what I mean? Or in league with another grandee of some sort. And I think they would make more money and they would reach more people than three and a half million that he reached every night. I I do. And I think he's got the ability to do it. I think he does have great um, prospects, but um, what do you think about then if we could add Don Lemon to this? this I, I so saw, different. can I, can I, that's what, you know, the view was talking about these two firings and that crazy Joy Reid or Sonny Halston, I don't know which one said, I don't know why people are putting these two firings together because they're they're in no way um, similar to each other. And I thought you are so spot on because Lemons is yeah, not in the way that she thought. Yeah, you had the you had the um, firing of a big success and money earner, and you had the firing of a money loser and complete failure. And the one was at Fox because of his ability to attract an audience. Don Lemon could not attract an audience. He couldn't open his mouth. And according to a lot of the sources, the interview was at Ramaswamy, uh, the presidential candidate. He couldn't open yes. his mouth without self-referencing that he was black, 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 black. And it was just a crazy interview. He was rude. He was disruptive. He was incoherent. He 
he couldn't even he didn't really know what the Civil War was about. He had no idea about the history of the Second Amendment, but that didn't stop him from being rude and insulting. He insults women on the air. He says crazy things. And then he feels that if Tucker's critical uh, critics think that Tucker felt that he was invulnerable, I'm not sure that's true. It was at least based on Tucker's knowledge of the data, right, that he was a big success. If Don Lemon thought that he was invulnerable, it was not because of the data. It was because he felt that they would not dare in the post-George Floyd period fire a black gay man from CNN. And they were willing to take loss after loss with him just so they would avoid. But then when apparently when they saw Bongino go and they saw Tucker go, then they saw Nate Silver was going to go from Disney. They just wanted to jump in and said, you know what? Everybody's getting rid of people. It's the new tight-fisted, shrinking market. We've got to cut. And you can get a lot of stuff done in Rama Mail. Never let a, a crisis go to waste. And that's what they did. Tucker had talent and Don Lemon had no talent. I don't know how he ever got on TV. He was obnoxious. Yes. He was ill-informed. The first time I ever heard of him, he was... I was channel surfing and he was talking about black holes that were swallowing up Indonesian airliners. Remember that? Oh, yes, I remember when and that. I, and he um, just he wouldn't yeah. stop. He wouldn't stop. At least when Tucker talks about UFOs, he gets a guy in there from the retired general or a pilot and they show data. Right. Yes. But he didn't have any data. No, he so he just had his crazy idea. I know. Yeah. But, you know, if. If you think about it, if they could get people like Megyn Kelly and Tucker and one or two others on their own show or their own network, they would it would be ballistic. You know what I mean? I mean, they're doing well. Yeah. They'll do it well independently. It, it is kind of you asked me at the beginning if there's any good news. The good news is that for all of the evil of the Internet and all of the monopolies of the media, this is kind of like the Wild West, 1880s. Nobody can control it. And there are mechanisms where a person with a microphone and a laptop can create a livelihood without being beholden to Fox or to a newspaper or to a particular radio show. If you see what I mean, a guy like Joe Rogan yes. or, or Jordan Peterson, they've been able to create viable vehicles that are very, very much more lucrative than the more, quote unquote, prestigious billets at CBS News. I don't know who the is, I, I'm asking the audience. I don't think any of us. If I ask you, who are the three primetime network anchors? I couldn't tell you. I could tell you up to about five years ago, but it's irrelevant now. And a Joe Rogan or a Megyn Kelly is much better known with a bigger audience than a than a anchor at CBS or NBC. So that is a good news that people on their own initiative and talent and entrepreneurial defiance can really create and be the master of their own destinies. So I imagine that that's what Tucker will do. We don't hear as much about Bill O'Reilly, but I've been on his show and he does have he does have a large audience. He asks insightful questions. He's got books he's continuing to write. I would imagine he's making the same amount of money. And I would imagine that he reaches more than 4 million people than what he was reaching at Fox. Yes. So 
that that's something you know, to to think about. Yeah, absolutely. I had a a small sub um, subject here that was kind of tangential tangential to this, and it was I was reading in Quillet an uh, article about how the news is always so bad, and it reminded me of us where we try to start out positive, but he this. Per- individuals writing that they we often get a distorted picture from the news about for example crime or racism and what he meant not not the statistics and going up but he meant he says well you're um likely to get killed violently the chances that you would is 0.0006% and so he says, everybody's watching these news, this news, and it's all so negative. That was a, and he says it distorts the. Uh, it does, it does, and that was an artifact of CNN that was a pioneer in what they called twenty four seven news. When I grew up in ancient history, we all came home from work, or where I came home from school. My parents came home from work at six o'clock. They turned on Cronkite, right? And they watched it for an hour. And there was actually 40 minutes, maybe. And they had guys like Eric Severi that would give commentary. But it was liberally biased. But there was no time to hear about some person in Little Rock, Arkansas, or somebody in Fresno that got shot, right? Yes. So what happened with 24-7, they had to fill up that 24-hour news cycle so that any little incident in 330 million, among 330 million people could be picked out and used as emblematic of larger pathologies because they're mostly bad stories. But it doesn't really mean that that's going to happen. That's what I'm saying. And yes. so I think there's a lot to that, that, that the news has to concentrate in a national sense with 24 hours of shock. And that means that you have to explore every nook and cranny of the United States, but you don't realize there's places where there's not much crime and there's not much violence and people get along and uh, we don't really hear about it. But there's a yeah, there's a lot of places really by that account. I'll give you one example. I if I look at the Fresno Bee or I look at KMPH's um, website, right, local Fresno yes. County. It is depressing as hell. Every single day, it's carjackings, shootings, bodies being found in orchards, uh, gang rivalries that erupt at parties and kill people, DUIs. Gosh, that's terrible. DUIs where the driver drives the wrong way, kills somebody, and leaves the scene of the accident. Okay. But I go to Fresno a lot. And I'd say in the last 10 years, I've seen two acts of violence myself. And I've been all over. And so that's the problem with 24-hour news. Yes, absolutely. uh, The other problem is that the schools of journalism are totally corrupt and discredited. They're biased. They're not ideologically disinterested. They don't train reporters in the fundamentals of reporting, sourcing, English prose and composition. 
So the stories are poorly written. You see, you see things with misspelled words in major newspapers. They all they don't understand what a source is, and it's gossip. It, it's just a, the the level of professionalism has gone way down. So there's a lot less respect for journalists because they feel that they're extensions of the democratic or the left wing agenda, and that's 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 different than it, what it used to be. There, you can say there's not one major. Uh, conservative daily paper, not the Chicago Tribune, not the Minneapolis Star, not the LA Times, not the uh, not the uh, Washington Post or New York Times, maybe the New York Post. And that's about it. And in cable news, it's Fox and maybe Newsmax, but it's not, you know, usually on all of the uh, cable packages. And so, there's not a lot of alternatives. No, but people are really turning to the podcast world, I think, a lot more than they, they are. used to. That's for sure. Yeah. I, I'm amazed that when I go somewhere and somebody comes up to me three years ago, they would say, oh, I disagreed with you or I agreed with what you said in Fox or I read your book. They don't anymore. They say, I heard you say something on the podcast. So I think mm-hmm. podcasts as a genre are catching on because you can do th- you know, I'm, not that you can't read something while you're on an exercise bike, but you can be driving, you can be lifting weights, you can be jogging, and you can listen to a podcast and get your information, multitask. And, that, and I Absolutely. think that's, that's the attraction. Yeah. Well, Victor, let's go ahead and take a break and come back to talk a little bit about Joe Biden's announcement that he's running for the presidency in 2024. Stay with us and we'll be right back. Have you heard of cancer-fighting foods? The American Cancer Society discovered diets rich in fruits and veggies may actually lower, lower your risk of cancer. Hopefully you hear this and run to the store for five servings of fruits and vegetables every day. If not, you should consider adding Field of Greens to your daily health regimen. Each fruit and veggie in Field of Greens was doctor-selected for studied health benefits. There's a heart health group, lungs, kidneys, and metabolism groups, even healthy weight. What your body needs is found in each scoop of delicious Field of Greens. Will Field of Greens prevent, treat, or cure cancer? No, but it's so powerful, it promises at your next checkup, your doctor will notice your improved health or your money back. I got you 15% off and free rush shipping, visit fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code VICTOR, V-I-C-T-O-R, for your discount. That's promo code VICTOR at fieldofgreens.com, fieldofgreens.com. At Just the News, we break the stories others in the media ignore or are too afraid to tell. We did it on Russia collusion, Hunter Biden, and the security and intelligence failures that preceded January 6th. Our stories have real impact and reach because we stick to the facts. I'm John Solomon. You can help me expand our honest, unvarnished, and unbiased reporting by becoming a premium member at Just the News. You'll get an ad-free experience and exclusive member-only access to events, and you'll be helping us dig up more truth. Join today at justthenews.com slash subscribe. You're listening to the Victor Davis Hanson Show. You can find Victor at 
victorhanson.com. The name of his website is The Blade of Perseus, and you can join us either with a free subscription to get on to our newsletter for all the free stuff on the website, or join us for a paid subscription and get VDH Ultra material, which of which there is lots. And you can um, try it for a month for $5 or come on for a whole year for $50. So please join us. Victor, what is your what are your thoughts? Poor, poor, I want to say poor old Joe Biden's thinking he's going to run for the presidency in 2024. Will he run and who will his vice president be, do you think? Well, ostensibly, what I would like to say is that he's in a jam because it's not COVID anymore. So he's not going to do those drive-in movie type rallies where a bunch of cars honk, right? Or he's not going to be in the basement because to do so will be an admission that he's non compos mentis. So he's going to have to go through a campaign of some sorts. And what by that, I mean the proper analogy is if you think he goes through the motions as president and he's much less viable or visible than a normal president. You're right, but he's still not in the basement and he doesn't like it. He's exhausted. But add two more years to that, two years from now. So it's going to be really a challenge for him to do that. And I don't think he can do it. That is go out on a real campaign. That's number one. Number two, he doesn't have anything. And you saw that in his little video and you see it with his Jean-Pierre. They never say we have a great border policy. They'll they'll say Trump has screwed the border up, but they'll never say the six and a half million we let in was good. They try to say that Afghanistan was a logistical success, but it, they they know that it was a disaster. They don't reference it. They don't say we are energy independent under Joe Biden. When they talk about the high inflation, they say it's everywhere. Uh, they when they have the high interest rates. So what I'm getting at is they don't want to claim what they have done. And so and if he's not going to be a vigorous Obama charismatic type of character or Bill Clinton, what is he going to do in this campaign? And we know what he's going to do. He's going to be a construct, an artifact, an incidental candidate. He's going to move his mouth and he's going to have his aviator glasses and he's going to read from a script. But that campaign will be outsourced to Silicon Valley. So maybe Mark Zuckerberg won't give $419 million, but they will raise comparable amounts of money and they will outspend the Republican candidate three to one, number one. And the people on the media have learned nothing from Russian collusion or disinformation. They are, they're shameless. They will go right back at it every night. It will be some story and so about Donald Trump. And so the narrative will not be they will not defend their record and they will put him out there, but he won't really be the campaign or the candidate. He has one role, and that is to be Joe Biden from Scranton, Pennsylvania, that has been familiar and doesn't fit the, the definition of the new Democratic Party as a revolutionary socialist Marxist. That's his duty. But he brings yes. in under that veneer or beneath that veneer a whole revolutionary agenda. But he won't talk about it because it's failed. And so what we're going to see in the next two years is 
he will start campaigning at 11 in the morning and he'll quit at two. And then he will let the media outsource it. And then they will get the DNC and they will get a bunch of grandees and they will get together and say, we need to sue in Pennsylvania, Michigan, Arizona, Georgia, Ohio. We need to sue and make sure that there is no voting IDs, that there's third party harvesting, that you can, you must count uh, absentee ballots or mail in 10 days, up to 10 days after the election ended, or there'll, there will be no necessity of checking a ballot versus the registrar's list. That's what they're going to do. And yeah. so they're going to raise a lot of money. They're not going to defend the record. They're going to go after Donald Trump. And then there's there's many legs of this new campaign strategy. So what I'm getting at is leg one is money. They're going to bury the Republicans because they have the money. Remember, the left has the money. Insurance, tech, media, etc. Finance, the corporate boardroom. That's where the money in this country is, and they have it. And number two, they're going to flood the legal zone they're going to they're going to wage lawfare to change the way that we ballot just mm -hmm. as they did in 2020 and 22 number 3 they're going to create the mega monster they've already created the ultra ultra mega monster that even if trump doesn't get the nominations they will say that desantis is an ultra mega monster so they'll try to frighten people and then there's another element besides lawfare and besides big money and besides outsourcing it to the media that they will use, and that is they will use the administrative state. We saw it in 2020 when the FBI suddenly produced this phony narrative that the laptop was Russian disinformation. We saw it in 2016 when they were, Jake Sullivan was very prominent. It's kind of scary that we have the National Security Advisor and the Secretary of State respectively seeding things in the 2016 and 2020 election to destroy their op opponent with on truth. But Jake Sullivan was deeply involved with Sussman and GPS and Glenn Simpson to advance the steel narrative. So they're going to, just like they did with the FBI and Twitter, so just because Elon Musk revealed the skullduggery that they had hired the old Twitter for three million to censor things they felt not useful to the Biden administration and the CIA was involved. Nobody's been punished. In fact, James Baker, I think the legal counsel for the FBI is making up to eight million dollars. He was rewarded. So we're going to see the deep state in the employment of the Biden campaign. And then finally, we know how the day-to-day -day campaign will be waged. Donald Trump is right now looking at this de temporarily defanged Alvin Bragg, but this is going to go on until December. Yes. And then Latita James is going to try to suggest that he committed fraud by overvaluing his real, um, real estate holding. I don't think that's going to go anywhere, but it's going to be in the news. And then we're going to have this woman who says that she at the lingerie, she showed Trump, what, like 1996? Is that when it was? It was just decades ago. And then he forcibly sexually assaulted her. She's going to get a lot of play. And then we're going to get the Georgia prosecutor about the phone call. 
and then we're going to get the special counsel, and they're going to be sequential, and they will coordinate, believe me, and from right about now all the way to election day, they're going to wage a administrative state war against Donald Trump. And the idea is to, A, give him enough empathy to win sympathy uh, and votes in the primary, and then to bleed him to death with a thousand cuts so that even somebody like Joe Biden, who's not of this world anymore, he's living in another alternate universe, that he will win. We all know that. The question we all have is, okay, we know it. We know the strategy. We know their resources. We've seen it before. Can we stop it? And that would entail mobilizing everybody to go to the polls, to watch people, to raise money, to to get the vote out. It would entail all the media to be scrutiny, scrutinize every single little gambit that they will do, like an, uh, another Russian disinformation letter. It would require unity. They have unity. We don't. So we don't know how the DeSantis-Trump Rivalry is going to pan out, nor should we, Sammy, because it's too early. We don't want to have a, a candidate just run away with it. We want two candidates to discuss things. There was a rumor today, did you see it, that Trump said he wouldn't debate in the primary against primary opponents? And then there, I, don't, I haven't seen that confirmed. And then Joe Biden said the same thing. But that would be terrible if we just to re replay the prior election without debates in the primary. Primary is when people really tell you how crazy they are, yeah, you know, absolutely. and that's what we want. And and so Debate, we all know what it is. It just can we stop what we know to happen? Mm. Well, I, I was wondering about Kamala Harris as his running mate. And recently she gave a speech at Howard. And here is how she ended it. Quote, so I think it's very important, as you have heard from so many incredible leaders for us at every moment in time, and certainly this one, to see the moment in time in which we exist in our present and to be able to contextualize it and to understand where we exist in history and in the moment at it, as it relates not only to the past, but to the future. Another brilliant statement by Kamala. Could she really be still the vice president? Does he have no choice? Uh, I got in trouble because um, I said she had a vocabulary of 500 words. I said that on the air, but I think that was. Generous. An, yeah, it was an exaggeration is what I'm trying to say. And uh, she, I don't know what, whether it's, she can't think on the go or. The people who write this stuff, because sometimes it's teleprompted, know that she can't, but it's just, you know, it is wash, rinse, spin, wash, rinse, spin. It's the same thing, just recycled. And it's it's not rhetorical. I mean, there is, you know, when you say for the people, by the people, of the people, that Lincoln-esque repetition is a rhetorical you know, it's a rhetorical device. device. Yeah. yeah. Forms of enumeration are always, there's all sorts of, uh, you know, there's tautology or uh, there's a fancy word I, I'm trying to remember. I think it's called anticlosis. It's a Greek word for uh, repeating a word, but with a slightly different meaning. But she doesn't know any of that. It's just that she's lazy or she's incompetent. 
And so she's a caricature. And they yes. can't get rid of her because she's a black woman. At some point in the United States, somebody is going to say, I don't care. I'm going to remove or hire a person based on their utility and merit. And you can call me anything in the world, and I don't care. But if they were to get rid of Kamala Harris, even though she's only half black and has not identified with the black community that much, and is very wealthy and the child of two PhDs, they would take a hit in the African-American community. And they are anyway, because I think a lot of African-American voters are not going to give them 90% loyalty at the polls. And so, yeah, yeah, but I mean, think about their dilemma. The problem with the Republicans is they have a candidate that won in 2016 and a guy who revolutionized the politics in Florida and it was the most successful Florida governor in history, and they're going to run against each other. The problem is not an abundance of riches. It's an abundance of mediocrity. You've got an 80-year-old senile candidate with someone who is a joke. She's nonsensical. And so it's going to be very interesting, especially if there's no primary debates. And I guess Trump has said there's not going to be, and so is Biden. But can you imagine what Robert, I mean, he has a, a voice impairment, but Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is right. He could he would slice Biden to pieces and they're, they're not going to allow that to happen. And I think DeSantis and Trump would be fireworks. It'd be wonderful to watch. Yes, absolutely. I, so I'm not a big, that that's all I'm not wrong. A big, yeah. yeah, I'm not a big fan of anointing anybody. Nobody gets that. No. Nobody gets to be anointed. We've, we saw that in 2016 when a good guy like Scott Walker with a wonderful record, everybody was way ahead in the polls and he just flamed out. And then we were all told in 2004 that Howard Dean was a new type of Democrat. He was the first guy to oppose the Iraq war. And then he gave the yeah, we're going to go that crazy <laughs> scream. And that was the end yes. of him. Then they brought out, you know, that fossilized uh, John Kerry, ossified. But we need to have primaries and we need to have debates so that people can see these candidates in action. They really do. And see what their agenda is. But have you noticed that recently Joe Biden seems to be talking about we want to be sure people's lives, you know, that people are secure, that something about security. And he hasn't actually said policing, but he's he's doing a Hillary. He can't give any data. Attack. Yeah, he can't give any data for two reasons. One, the data is all negative and he's the cause of it. Because crime did go up and murder did go up and hate crimes did go up and interracial crimes did go up and the border is a mess and the foreign policy is a mess and China and Russia are on the move and Iran is on the move and North Korea is back to where it was. So it's a mess. So he can't give any data. And number two, he, he, he has constituencies that wouldn't let him have any data if he wanted, if it was positive, he cannot. What's he going to do? Attack a Soros DA? Can you imagine if he came out and said, I'm really critical of Alvin Bragg? He, he doesn't understand. He can't do that because he needs 90% of the African American vote and 70% of the Latino vote. And so he can't do that. He's a prisoner. 
And so he's not going to do any of that. What he's going to say is security is a good thing. We're strong as ever. We're back. And the economy's roaring. It's booming. That's what he does. I just heard him today. That was almost verbatim what he said. There's no yeah. data. There's no detail. There's nothing. And so his, his view is they cut to the newsroom and then the anchor says, well, that was very good speech. And we're going to have Senator Coons come in. And he said, I really liked his penmanship. You know, that's, <laughs> yes, that's what they that. do. Yeah. It's yeah. like Obama's <laughs> plate. What's your favorite flavor of ice cream? And so okay. that's what they do. And, and yes. the right says it can't go on. It can go on until you destroy that paradigm. And so what they need is a Reagan person who destroyed that liberal paradigm. And he did because he he stole the whole Reagan Democrats from the Democratic Party. And what they need is a dynamic candidate that can pick up an extra three to four of the suburban vote, maintain the base and increase that eroding Democratic majority of Latino and black voters. So you get up to about 45 Latino voters, 15 to 20 African-American voters. You get another three to five and you do that and you will pick up seven or eight Senate seats and you have 30 or 40 House seats. Then if you have a good administrator who's experienced, then you can do stuff if you win the presidency. And I mean, quick, quickly. And yes. we'll see. Unfortunately, yes. Donald Trump had the presidency. He had the House and he had the Senate, but he had not been a president before. And he had a lot of bad appointments. But more importantly, he had people that despised him in his own party more than the Democrats. So that John McCain hated his guts and he single handedly sabotaged any reform or replacement of Obamacare. It was terrible what he did. He yes. campaigned on it and then he turned around just to spite Trump. He he sandbagged that whole project. That would have been very important because health co costs have soared way above the rate of inflation under Obamacare. Yes, I know that. Victor, we are we are right on a break, but I wanted to just ask you a short thing, because while you were talking, I remembered that Larry Elder um, announced his run for the presidency in 2024. And I was wondering if anything in short you have on that you wanted to say on Larry Elder. I, I really like him, you know, as a candidate. So I was wondering. Yeah, what he's very bright and he's very quick on his feet. The only problem is that candidates that have never held a particular office in the past and have never been elected don't are not serious with one exception and that is if they've got money so donald trump had money and ross perot had money and michael bloomberg got himself on a stage because he had money it's been a billion dollars so i don't know how larry elder is going to have the wherewithal to overcome the fact that he doesn't have a constituency that's voted for him. Yeah. And that's going that's to be a, a problem. What the Democrats are doing too, just to get finish that other topic, we saw that with Diane Feinstein in 2018 in the Senate race when it was clear that she was deep she had a disability. And they nevertheless she ran and she won, I think, 63%. And nobody thought that she would be able to do what she was supposed to do, but she would occupy that seat and it was irrele irrelevant just so she had that vote. They did the same thing with John Fetterman. 
everybody knew in the left that he was non-compos mentis. He was not able, but he just needed to sit there where they handed him. And the same thing about Joe Biden. And so in their way, they have an agenda and it supersedes particular individuals. They just need the people to be elected. And they don't care whether they can talk or not, whether their mind is there or not. All they have to do is occupy a space. And like I go back to that old Star Trek scene where the, you know, they, this planet they try to Im- impose national socialism on, this guy does. And then he's, they take over from him and he's just babbling. He's just a, a face on the television screen that's being manipulated. And that's yeah, what they that's do. A, that's what yeah, they do. The Republicans don't have that discipline. That unity, they really don't. They're fighting all well, the time, and and they're young. Republicans, yeah, Republicans uh, admire or value free thought and free thinking. I think that's the whole problem with the and they're and they're they're younger and they're more dynamic. These Democrats yes. are all. I mean, Dick Durbin 70, 73, So is Schumer. Clyburn is third in the House. He's eighty two. Biden's eighty. Feinstein's 89, Pelosi's 83, and they're all remnants from the 60s. And uh, they're there because they kind of have their finger in the dike. And the dike water that wants to burst out behind the dike is the AOC squad, those Elizabeth Warren type people. And maybe Hakeem Jeffries uh, is the new type of leader that will be dominant in the Democratic Party. And the Democratic yeah. Party is de facto a racial identity politics party. That's its, its in identity politics. That's what it is. It's the transgendered identity. It's Latino identity. It's black identity. And it, it has a fundamental parad- paradox in it because it's run by wealthy white people from Silicon Valley and the Eastern Seaboard. And they apparently encourage this, this identity, racial, identify, you know, this separation, segregation, chauvinism, because they have the means and the wherewithal not to take it too seriously because it doesn't affect them. They live in compounds or kids go to the right schools. They can buy anything they want. They have security guards, but they find it useful to get power. And when the power is gotten, they are in control. They're the, it's George Soros is in control. Joe Biden's people around him are in control. And that's what they do. Yeah, that's for sure. It's, it's not I a think grassroots it's... thing. I don't see a lot of black people in the street protesting because they want more affirmative action or something. It's an elite, an elite, elite. And I don't think they're out there protesting against charter schools. Maybe they're whipped up by the teachers unions, but they're not out there saying, you know, we have to have open borders and no charter schools. That comes from the, the very, very wealthy bicoastal, mostly white elite. Yes, absolutely. And it's, they're running a race against how long it will take their constituency to understand that the racial politics is very limited in scope and that their leaders are really after power and they could really care less. seems to me that's what the Democrat, you know, the tension is in the Democratic Party. I could be wrong. I don't know. The problem they have is that is that they would rather ruin things and be ideologically correct than to be empirical or disinterested. So 
they know that they are single-handedly responsible for 550 a gallon gas in California. They don't care. They have no concern at all. You 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 take a Stanford professor that's behind that or a Bay Area politician and you take them down here to San Joaquin or five points and you show them poor Latino communities and you say this guy has a five thousand dollar truck. It gets 18 miles a gallon. He's not causing global warming, but you are charging him five sixty to fill up and he can't afford to get to work or he can't afford to run his landscape business. They don't care. They do not care. You show them school districts in which not one person can meet the minimum standards of uh, math proficiency or English proficiency. They don't care. They still want teachers union. They still want no standards. They still want lifetime tenure. They don't care. And so far, the Republicans and the conservatives have not been able to make that argument to the middle and lower middle and poor class that these people don't care. They're rich, selfish bastards, and they don't care about you. That's what's behind the solar wind uh, agenda. That's what's behind the elite transgendered stuff. They don't care what it does to women's sports. They don't care that a 12-year-old can be psychologically confused for years and yet be mutilated. They don't care. It's the, it's the ideology. It's the agenda. Yes. Well, Victor, we need to go to, oh, go ahead. And no, it's just that nobody can break through and and tell people that nobody, everybody's afraid of being called a transphobe or a homophobe or a sexist, misogynist, racist, I guess. That's why Tucker was unique. He didn't care. So when he said things that were insensitive, people keep saying, I'm reading all of these left wing attacks on him today. And they have show you how lazy they are. They just get one article and they all copy it. And they have three or four thematic uh, Tucker isms that they feel says it's a racist. He said about the Texas, uh, excuse me, the Tennessee legislature that went from Mr. Conciliatory. Remember that to the black guy that took over the megaphone? He said he used a shop, a sharecropper's accent. Was that insensitive? Probably. But when you look at tapes of that fellow early on and then six years ago and what he was, that was a made up falsetto voice, completely fake accent. And it was done entirely for cynical political purpose. And that was Tucker's point. And he was saying that. And but most Republicans won't say that. They just they just can't do it. No, they can. They're too afraid of being called racist. Yeah, they, they um, have. They have. They play by the markets of Queensbury rules, and they have not seen the underbelly of America. They see the underbelly of America. They can say, you know what? That, that was what's wrong with the under with the Never Trump movement. It was all an elite movement. It was all an elite movement. It was all elite Beltway people and media people and academic people who never see the underbelly of America. So for them, it was just, oh, he insulted me or I'm not going to be I won't I'm not going to say I could vote for that troll Trump or his sensibilities are shocking. But it was never uh, this isn't a perfect world. This is the Hillary agenda. This is the Trump agenda for poor people who want a chance to make it. It's better to have Trump. It's safer for all of us overseas. They didn't care. They don't care. They don't see those people. They don't care about those people. 
You're right. Well, Victor, let's go ahead and take a break, and then we'll come back and talk a little bit about the green agenda and the middle class. We've sort of brought those things up. Um, so stick with us, and we'll be right back. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome back to the Victor Davis Hanson Show. And we were going to turn then to the green agenda. I was reading an article in the Spike um, website by Joel Kotkin. And he's talk he was um, addressing the green agenda and how it was going to change our lives. And one thing that I noticed in the article, he wrote that the green agenda, and I didn't know this, is expected to cost $6 trillion each year for the next 30 years. That's an absolutely incredible um, amount of money. And then his point was, is they're going to be taking it all from us to do that and then expect us to cut back on our lives. And he said, the elites want to save the planet and immiserate the common citizen. And it's I, very that, strange. that was kind of the theme. It's very strange that they hate their own citizens more than they do the people who are their main foes ideologically on green issues, which are the Chinese. They will never, ever lecture the Chinese on all of the coal plants they're opening. They will never lecture them on anything, but they will go tell some guy in a tract house in San Jose, we're going to take away your gas stove and we're going to take that diesel pickup from you. And we're going to get kilowatt charges up to 30 cents so you don't use the air conditioning. In other words, they're saying we're going to destroy the modern middle class lifestyle because we ideologically feel that it's contrary to our green agenda. What is the green agenda? It's based on a theory that demonstrable, but not great, but measurable, measurable heating of about a one degree over the last 150 years since, you know, the onset of the industrial revolution, that there's a relationship between the two and not that the earth throughout its billion-year history goes through natural cycles of ice and heat. And we're in a mini warming period that is not necessarily tied down, connected, joined by the Industrial Revolution and the result of man-made releases of carbon. And so 
that's their religion. And when you try to uh, this Mr. This uh, scholar Kunin who did on vote unsettled, when he tries to show you just that, they go they freak out because they're it's for them it's a religious experience. But you don't you don't remake society on the basis of religion unless you're the Aztecs or the Mayas or somebody. And that's what they're doing. They're making it. You can't talk about it. You can't mention it. You you have to get rid of natural gas. You have to build huge battery plants at Moss Landing that blow up and catch on fire. You have to charge so much for energy that people will cut back on their lifestyle back to the 40s or 30s. And, and it's all predicated on, on the idea that the people who are driving this down our throats are never subject to the consequences of their own politics, ideology, programs, protocols. They're not. They're not. I go to, I just got back from Silicon Valley and I noticed that when I came home here, it was 90. You know, it was like 68 there in Menlo Park where I ate dinner, 68. And I drove around the neighborhood. I got lost in that labyrinth around Menlo Park. I noticed something. When I see homes in the San Joaquin Valley, they all have air conditioners. These are on the top of the house, on the side. I didn't see one air conditioner. And then it's kind of like my office. I don't have, I've never turned on the heater. I've never turned on the air conditioner. But people from that temperature zone, they dictate policy for the rest of the people who have days that are 40 degrees in the winter and 110 in the summer. But they don't care. And they don't have long commutes. They don't have long commutes. The people in San Francisco and Menlo Park, they, they don't commute. The people in Hollister do, or Los Banos, the, the middle-class staffers or the middle-class service workers, they do, but not the grandees. They have the money to live near, near these, these places of employment. So what I'm getting at is a lot of this woke revolution is based on the idea that a very leisured and affluent class has the margin of error to afford these doctrines that fall so heavily on those who are aspiring to make it. And that's what's so strange about it because they advertise themselves as a party of empathy. They're the party of selfishness, selfish people, ideologically driven, blinkered people that don't want to look at new information. They don't want to have discussions. They're religious in a weird sense, and their God is green. And it's it's really disturbing. Joel Kotkin's been writing about this for 10 years. I, I admire what he's trying to He has three big themes that he tries to explore from a different angle. And theme number one is that we're a medieval California, that we have a elite coastal multimillionaire group, and then we have peasants. And I kind of wrote about that in a different way in The Dying Citizen. And then number two, that you don't have to be some right winger. There would be a moderate stance. You could build some clean hydroelectric plants still. You could explore fusion nuclear power. You could build four or five reservoirs to get water. You could just say, we well, you know what? When we go to electric, we're still going to kill people on the freeway. So let's take I-5, 101, and then 99 and make sure there are six lanes of safe, well-designed roads to stop all this mayhem and carnage. And you know what? Maybe we can just enforce the laws we have in our big cities like Los Angeles and San Francisco. As someone who was 
just in San Francisco and not much earlier, just in Los Angeles, it's remarkable how these cities have committed, I guess you'd say cannibalism or suicide. They've destroyed themselves. I don't know whether the old guys died off or they moved, but there's nobody in control. And everybody's afraid to arrest somebody because they know he's going to be let out anyway. And I don't know. And everybody's making the necessary adjustments. They don't go here or there. They, they, you know, that's uh, a big expect. That's a big no, no, that the liberal is the most aware of the racial cauldron that he has created and the crime problem. Because I know a lot of liberal friends and they stereotype and profile like you don't know. I mean, they will not go to a particular area at a particular time because of a particular people is there. And they will not put their kids in schools that have high minority populations. My parents said, you know what? We're not going to put you in the farm school. Sorry, kids. We're going to put you in the barrio school. And you're going to learn to get along with people that don't look like you. And it was pretty rough. And I did the same to my kids. I said, you're going to go to a public school. And you're going to go to Selma High School. And it's going to be tough. But that's who the people are, and you got to you got to be one with the people. But not these left wing liberals. They put they don't want that. No, of course not. They're they they want to they want to call people racist whose kids are in the public schools and think that's important. But that's a, a medieval, as I said, that's an exemption, that's a penance, that's some type of bargain they've made with their, I don't know, with their conscious that. The more that I self-segregate, the more I don't want to be around the other, the more loud, louder I am in my virtue signaling. And the more that I call other people names to hide the fact that the charges that I lodge against others are better and more applicable applied to me. Mm. Yeah, I wonder when the middle class is going to realize that this left agenda, whether it's the green agenda or the other things, that they're the ones being hit by inflation, by taxation, by overextension of the government, by the extension of entitlement programs beyond what it seems like we're able to pay. They're being hit by lower wages, more unemployment, et cetera. And I, I just, I, I, when I was Looking at what I was going to talk with you about today, I was thinking, what is the fate of this middle class? Are they just going to keep going along with this? Are we going to be Roman? Well, first of all, they're shrinking. Until Trump, they hadn't had a rise in real wages for 12 years. And housing is the percentage of people who were able to afford a house was declining and home ownership was declining, especially now with higher interest rates and supply shortages that make homes more expensive. So they're not, they're hurting. They're hurting, hurting, hurting. This, this president has done more to destroy the middle class price of eggs, the price of meat, price of bread, the price of everything, the price of repairing your home, price of gas, the price of a car, everything is higher and the security is less. And, The taxes are higher on the middle class. And so they don't have a voice. They had one with Reagan because he was a product of the middle class, at least where he grew up. And he was 
sociable. He wasn't a mean guy. And so he charmed, you know, 10 to 15% of the electorate. That's how he won. He took, he just took the old blue dog Democrat, the old Democrat and said, you know, I was a Democrat. They don't exist anymore like us. So vote for me. And then he kind of tamped down on the excesses of the Republican party that was caricatured as a golfing aristocratic class. And so, although he golfed a little bit, you were much more likely to see Reagan with a chainsaw or on a horse or clearing brush on his ranch, you know. Yes. And he had these buddies or pals that were Secret Service liked him. And he had guys that were hung out with him that were not, that you didn't. I mean, he had the kitchen cabinet and the wealthy people, but he was able to transmit this folksy charm. But we don't have somebody like that that came out of the middle class and genuinely believes in the middle class and wants to use classic conservative principles, soci sociological, economic, political, cultural, civilizational, to help the middle class, which is the majority of, of student, students. Instead, it's, it's fear. It's like, I don't want to be called a racist. I don't want to be called... Uh, a snob. I don't want to be called this. I want to be called that. So they don't call the Democrats out. They, if we had good politicians, they'd say the Democratic Party is racist. Racist. All it does is fixate on the color of your skin for political advantage. And you know why we know who is racist? Because Joe Biden is racist. From the corn pop stories to you ain't black to hey junkie to two times when he referred to an African-American subordinate as hey boy through the racial jungle and all that stuff of the 70s, that, that party is imbued with race, racial fixations. And now you have in a black elite that's absolutely racist. It is, And you can see that when the poor artists, you know, of Delbert got in trouble by saying something stupid that because he saw a poll where African-Americans poll that they didn't want to be around whites or they thought whites were toxic or whatever the poll was, then he countered that and said, I don't want to be around blacks. He should have said, I want to be around blacks and try to convince them that segregation is the path to oblivion. So when you see the Stanford black students, Stanford Law School black students trying to threaten the law school by saying that they're no longer going to recruit African-Americans for the law school, or when you see the NAACP saying they're not going to go to Florida, they urge blacks not to go, that's that's a suicidal policy. That is a suicidal policy. They should be saying, we want to go to Florida. We want to learn what the other side is doing. We, The African-American community at the law school should be saying, we want to recruit African-Americans, but we want to have tutorials. We want to have uh, professors come in to, to ensure that we're excellent at English composition or reasoning. We want to be better, more sophisticated, more articulate than other people are, rather than just blame the system because you're afraid that you can't excel at something. Yeah. So it's it's really sad that was one of the things about the tuskegee airmen i know they're overplayed but if you read their saga and the person who knows a lot about it is tom soul he wrote me an email the other day about it and we had talked about it before but the point was that i know there was a lot of 
in our age of racial identity, they went back and sort of recalibrated the Tuskegee Airmen. But if you look at contemporary accounts at the time, they had an excellent kill ratio against German pilots. They had an excellent ratio when they were escorting B-24s of preserving the formation because of good fighter escort. And the reason they did is when you look at their trainers, it was not, oh, the world's against us. We want... Uh, we want to make sure that African-American pilots have less hours. We shouldn't have to have the same amount of hours as white pilots because we were it was we want more. We want to be better. And that's what they were. And that's the only way to success in this country. If you're going to if you're going to fall in the trap of racial identity, then you better make sure that you work harder than the other competition. And that's and that's what we're, we're lacking in the African-American community. And we're lacking it in the white community that will say that. And and I I don't have any credibility. I, I spent 21 years at Cal State Fresno with that theory that I looked at the student body when I was hired and there was no Greek and Latin program. There was no uh, humanities of the ancient world program. There was no individual classics major. And I said, I want to produce a bachelor's degree, independent major in classics. I want to unite it with the ancient history component. I want the, and I looked at the students and I said, these are working class kids. They were either mostly Mexican-American or Hmong or black or poor white. And I said, I want to show them they can be better educated than somebody at a prep school because I don't think talent has anything to do with race or economic status. And after 21 years, it was just an exhausting experience because the more that they succeeded, and the more that they went to prestigious schools and the more they went into the upper class, the more the temptation was put upon them by the therapeutic movement, the racially chauvinistic movement, the Latino, Chicano Latino studies, the blacks. Hey, you've been blinded. You're really a victim. And you can go even further if you mouth the diversity equity. So that was, I thought that I had done something, but I look back at that career and I think, wow, I taught all those students that racial was incidental and it meant nothing and that they could be in four years of hard work. They could be as competitive as people at Sacred Heart or Castilea in the Bay Area with from wealthy homes. And I think I, I, I did achieve that point, but I don't think that the students appreciated it. I don't when I look back because so many of my graduates went into the diversity, equity, inclusions and flipped politically. So once the temptation was, you're a victim, tell us you're a victim, they they did it. But the irony was they were very well trained, so they didn't need to do that because they were better trained than anybody. Because we insisted that our faculty, that everybody gave a lecture a class report without notes. We corrected their grammar and their compositions. We made sure that Greek and Latin focused on philology, grammar, syntax. And it was pretty rigorous. It was based on what I had been taught in graduate school. And it was very successful. We had great professors, too. But I don't, I, looking back, and I think that was so much, you know, so much effort. I, you know, when you, you, you go back to your office after teaching three hours and there's 10 kids in your class, or some kid says, you know, I'm short money, I need some shoes. Or another kid said, can I borrow your pickup? Or another person said, my dad thinks... It's a waste of time. Will you call him? That kind of stuff. It was extracurricular outside the classroom that was necessary. 
or I, I want to drop Greek in the second semester, or I can't do it, or it's a waste of time, unless you tutor me. Can I? Can you tutor me? Okay. I had one time 17 tutorials per semester. I remember 17 wow. was the magic number. My daughter, who was would visit me once in a while, would drop in in my office, and she'd always see students there. She goes, how many tutorials do you have? I said, I don't know. And she goes, I'm going to count them. So she went to my grade book. She goes, you have 17 independent studies. Well, I look back at all that. Who, who wants to do all that? See, that that's the duty of the university to do that. You shouldn't have to be an exception. That should be the main course because it works. And I can say when I still meet students, they still are very, very well-educated and they're very successful and they're very confident. But I would say maybe a third of them that I, I meet, I think they're kind of ashamed of me because I was always conservative, but now they have gravitated into higher positions of administrative in education, for example, in which they have re-emphasized or rediscovered their ethnic fides in a way that I had suggested race was incidental and we should just not even discuss it. But I think they felt that there were more rewards by just not just discussing it, by emphasizing it. Yeah. Well, Victor, I think they probably appreciated it more than you might expect. So perhaps you'll find that out in the future. Yeah, I know I'll that your listeners that might out. appreciate it. Yeah. Every once in a while, I bump into a guy that I, I remember very well. I did, I did the other day when I gave a lecture. I gave a lecture in... Um, Madeira to an almond growers group. And there was a couple of former students that yeah. I remember them all too, but uh, it was a very different that photographic life. memory of yours. <laughs> well, I did remember them. Yeah, and, that's great. Well, anyway. Victor, I know that your listeners appreciate your wisdom. So do I, and we're at the end of the show. So thanks to our listeners and thanks to you. And thank you for listening, everybody. This is Sammy Wink and Victor Davis Hansen, and we're signing off.